Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the Eugenic, we have a chat about the War of 1812. Very important war in the history of, of two nations, uh, of course, the United States and Canada, and a very unimportant war to basically everyone else involved, namely the British. But uh, there were a number of really interesting and, uh, and important things that came out of the conflict that was fought, uh, well, in 1812, obviously, and through 1815. Um, probably didn't need me to tell you that. Didn't need the history degree to, to, to figure that, to crack that particular case, probably. Um, and also a number of the most ridiculous stories in the history of North America, which I, I will remind you is saying something. So let's get into it, talk about the War of 1812. It, it kicked off again. At, did, I didn't really have to tell you that. It began in 1812. Uh, this is at a time when uh, the United States, I tell you what, pretty bloody pissed off with Britain, eh? Really, really not happy with uh, with the UK. And uh, as a result, they start chucking some punches around because they are just bloody tired of these these British bastards uh, telling them how to, how to you know, they've, they've, uh, to run the business. They've, they've gained their independence. They don't want to have to worry about, you know, these bloody British wankers on the other side of the Atlantic. They want to be left and well alone. But uh, there are a bunch of reasons that, uh, that this isn't happening. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of things going on that, that mean that the United States is, is, is really uh, not happy with the United Kingdom. So first of all, a bunch of trade restrictions are in place uh, and all sorts of other boring stuff as well that we don't need to get into. Just a, a result of the, the, the Napoleonic Wars, essentially. So Britain is busy fighting France uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. And of course, the uh, traditional ally of France was the United States, even though they did like to keep themselves out of international conflicts early in their in their history. Um, they obviously were heavily impacted by these blockades, by these trade restrictions, whatever else that was going on uh, that Britain was, was doing to try to hamstring the French war effort. So that's number one. The US is also very cranky about uh, the British support of many of the Native American tribes that were fighting fighting with settlers on the frontier. This is a, a time of a great expansion into the West uh, in in the United States, and uh, there are a lot of uh, Native American tribes that are being backed up by the British with uh, with you know with material and, and financial support in order to contest this uh, this emerging power on the on the American continent. Um, so that's number two. The second, the third thing here, this is a very important one, is the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. You may have heard of this one of the one of the real uh you know sparks that set off the uh, the, the tinderbox that was this war was this uh, this affair the u.s was heavily embarrassed that their pants pulled down here by by the british uh, when a british warship boarded a u.s warship uh seeking deserters from the royal navy this was the sort of stuff that back in the day could uh, provoke a huge political scandal uh you know as it was seen as as a as a massive insult to the young nation the uh, the uk not respecting the sovereignty of the united states states there and boarding one of their warships, as I say, searching for these uh, deserters. Um, now, the other thing about um, the war effort going on in, in the European theatre at this time is that Britain wasn't just looking for deserters, they were looking for new recruits. And, and what they actually did here, you've got to remember, this is very early on in the history of the United States, and many of its citizens, many of the people that live there at least, are British or of British extraction or are, are in fact British citizens. So the British were forcing 
British-born American citizens to fight for them in the Napoleonic Wars. This was called impressment, and it was probably actually the main reason for the war. The US demanded that the British stop doing this. Uh, it was one of the, you know, it was a huge affront to the young nation, as I say, having their having their blokes, uh, you know, packed up and uh, and forced to fight in a war that had nothing to do with them essentially. And as a result, the US they demanded the British stop doing it, and actually the British agreed to do it. But <laughs> this is great. The US didn't find out that they'd changed their mind about it uh, in time before uh, war had already been declared. So essentially, the UK are like, yeah, fine, all right, no worries about it. Send, send off the message. But by the time they've they've sent the message, war has already the war has already started. And of course, as you can see, a bunch of other factors. So you know, as as soon as that sort of die was cast, they couldn't really unring that particular bell. There, we ended up mixing up metaphors with with dice and bells. But hey, you know what? Let's just let's just power through. Um, the British, they didn't love the fact that the United States had declared war on them because they reckoned they'd done everything that they reasonably could here to avoid a punch on. And actually, they saw the war, and you know, perhaps justifiably so, they saw it as political opportunism from the president at the time, who's, who was James Madison. Uh, some people even believe that Madison was actually going to try to completely annex Canada while the British were busy, busy dealing with old mate Napoleon. So uh, there were those at the time who saw... Uh, Madison is being opportunistic and, and essentially trying to get a sneaky one in on the British while they're busy fighting Napoleon to to annex Canada and essentially take over the, all of North America. So the War of 1812, it is fought, uh, once it begins, of course, it is fought at sea uh, in the north on the Canadian border, and it's fought uh, in the southwest uh, of the United States. Uh, in, uh, sorry, the southeast. Southeast. South, southwest is not a thing at this stage. Um, uh, it's not part of the United States. Uh, it's fought at the south, uh, southeastern part of the uh, of the states, including the Gulf Coast. So these were the main theatres at sea, up in the northeast, and down in the southeast as well. Both the United States and Britain legitimately invaded and tried to conquer the other's territory. The United States invaded Canada, which of course at this stage was still part of the British Empire, and spun the war as a second war of independence uh, as Britain landed troops in the capital. So there were actual land invasions uh, by, perpetrated by both parties in this war. Now, uh, admittedly, and one of, the, one of the most important factors to the war's beginning was the fact that both the United States and the United Kingdom enormously unprepared for this war, hugely unprepared for things to kick off as, as, as they did, uh, because the US, despite declaring the, you know, the war in the first place, they weren't ready for, for its full scope. President Madison had assumed that they'd capture Canada, no worries at all, and then negotiate a peace settlement. But you know, despite his optimism, there were a lot of opponents to the war within the US itself, especially in New England, where the war was referred to as Mr. Madison's War. And uh, many states, they didn't chip in their bit. Many of these states, they were like, nope, look, we're not contributing. We don't like this war, we're not going to go along with it. Britain, on the other hand, they're unprepared, but for a completely different reason. Of course, they are so, so heavily, you know, they are deep into this uh, into this Napoleonic war. They're, they're you know, very well and truly got their hands full fighting Napoleon here. And given that the British army was dug in so deeply in Europe at the outset, they didn't have much to spare for offensive action or the defence of Canada. So both both parties kind of, you know, caught a little unprepared here and put a little off guard, but uh, that's the way that it started there. So let's talk about these, these theatres of war, and we'll kick things off with the north, because the north is where a lot of the early action takes place along the Canadian border. 
Now, the United States, they think that capturing Canada is going to be easy peasy, lemon squeezy, be home in time for Christmas, not a worry. There were a bunch of invasions by US troops into Canada, but uh, the British soldiers that were stationed there, of course, better trained, better disciplined, and the militia attacks were always essentially fended off without too much of a worry by uh, the, you know, the, these redcoats, these, these uh, hard-worn army veterans. But the, the Canadians could never really capitalise on this because of the Napoleonic War again. The Canadians, and you know, this led to a lack of troops that meant that the Canadians more or less always on the defensive. So it wasn't ideal for them. They weren't really able to capitalise on, you know, on any of the victories that they gained. They were, they were very defensive victories. Um, there are a couple that I wanted, a couple of battles and, and incidents I want to talk about here. Uh, some of them very, very funny indeed. Uh, some are very interesting as well. Sort of little, little uh, producing quite interesting little, uh, little uh, history facts. Uh, let's talk about August in, in 1812. This is right after the start of the war. Uh, the British general Isaac Brock he manages to capture the city of Detroit, led by William Hull. William Hull is the uh, is the United uh, the commander in, in the United on uh, the United States side. He's in charge of the city, and uh, William Hull is actually. Uh, forced to surrender or chooses to surrender uh, to Isaac Brock after some pretty high-level chicanery from old Brock. What he does, uh, a a couple of things that he does here, actually. The first thing he does is he makes his army seem much, much bigger than it was. He does this by giving all of his, you know, rubbish, half-trained militia troops second-hand uniforms of army regulars. So all of a sudden, it looks like he's got a huge contingent of highly trained British redcoats. Um, Additionally, he gets his army, instead of lighting... Uh, you know, one big cook fire per uh, per unit, per company. This was the normal way that uh, things were run uh, administratively uh, when this army camped out. Instead of getting, you know, one large cook fire per unit, he actually got all of the soldiers to cook little individual cook fires at night, light all of these tiny cook fires that, that meant that at night the army looked much, much bigger than it was because this was one of the ways you could scout out the numbers, counting the number of fires at night in the cover of darkness. The final thing, and the, and the funniest thing that happened here, is that General Isaac Brock marched his army past the American entrenchment, uh, entrenchments and past the fortifications there at Detroit in a circle. He, he snuck his army in this circle formation back through the brush, through the woods and forests and stuff, and then marched them right the way back around in a big circle, past the army again. So, you know, if you're ever watching a film and you notice the same extra keeps popping up in all the background scenes, this is exactly what's going on here. But the British don't notice that the same army is marching around. Sorry, the the Americans don't notice that the same army, same British army is marching around and around a circle and they wildly overestimate how many uh, troops this bloke has. And um, on top of this, so on top of this sort of, you know, the, 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 Silly buggers, he was playing with the size of his army. The other thing he did, he was he enlisted a bunch of Native Americans under the command of a bloke named Tecumseh. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. It's a, if, I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation. But Tecumseh is, I tell you what, this bloke, absolute kicking goals with both feet, this bloke. He was a red-hot pistol. He, um, he was described by Brock as the Wellington of the Indians, which is obviously quite high praise considering the, you know, the enormous stature that Wellington has in, the, in, in British history. Um, and, and he was, he certainly was, to come say, absolutely, I tell you what, he was, uh, he was just a red-hot go-getter. He, he was fighting for an independent Native American nation and was hoping that by helping the British, they'd later help him set this up. So he was obviously, you know, saying, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my a bit later on, and we'll get this uh, get this party started. Now, obviously, they didn't, and Tecumseh, in in the grand tradition of Native Americans, when it came to uh, the colonisation from across the Atlantic, got royally screwed over, uh, which is obviously a great shame. But that is the way that uh, the cookie crumbled in that particular uh, instance. There, um, so with. 
Brock having this, you know, huge army backed up by these Native American warriors, uh, he intimidates Hull, the the American uh, American commander. He he intimidates Hull into surrendering. So Brock essentially what he does, he he, he more or less tricks uh, Hull into surrendering. Here he coerces him into into white, raising the right, white flag, with all the you know the the tomfoolery that's going on with the the the, the army marching in a circle and these these uh, Native American warriors he's got at his back as well. He actually gets them uh, gets uh, Hull just to go yeah. You, I'll tell you what, you, you've got us. The, the the jig is up. You've got thousands and thousands of British regulars. You've got all these Native Americans ready to uh, ready to get it done here as well. So, um, yep, uh, I guess I guess that's it. GG. And he asks for three days uh, to work out the terms of the surrender uh, and figure out how the city is going to be handed over to the British. Now, Brock, he comes back and he says, "No, no, 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 mate. Three days. You don't need three days. I'll give you three." hours. Think about the stones on this bike. What a monster of a man this Brock is. He says, no, three days. No, bugger that. You can have three hours. Now, as a concert, obviously the, the city falls, the, the British move in and, and that's that. But as a result of this surrender, he gets court-martialed for surrendering the city and he's sentenced to death. But uh, he is eventually given the old presidential pardon from Madison. He's, he's, he was actually a veteran of the War for Independence, so he got off with the old slap on the wrist there. Uh, poor old General Brock, on the other hand, after having uh, captured Detroit, he actually died uh, later during the Battle of Queenston Heights, which was a failed American attempt to invade Canada across the Niagara, and and he's one of the casualties there. Uh, Brock, uh, he dies when uh, some slippery American bastard uh, snuck out of the bushes and uh, plugged him right in the heart. This sharpshooter uh, got him. And uh, his last words, which is not really fitting for this bloke, I have to say, his last words were said to be, push on, don't mind me which is surprisingly passive-aggressive from, you know, this mighty war hero, I have to say. Anyway, this was, uh, this was just one of the, you know, the, the ridiculous things that happened during the War of 1812. Uh, you may have heard this little, this little fact about cannons being fired across the Niagara River during this campaign up in the north. This is absolutely true. This happened in 1813 at the Battle of Fort George, which is actually only a few kilometres away from Niagara Falls itself. It took place on the 25th of May in 1813. So, you know, you got all the tourists there. They're enjoying bloody Ripley's Believe It or Not and buying overpriced overpriced fake Ray-Bans and, and whatever else. Uh, the US Army that is stationed in Fort Niagara, they're piffing red-hot cannonballs over the Niagara River uh, and setting the Canadian Fort George on fire. Two days later, on the 25th of May, the US sneak across the river under, under a morning fog and they, they make to encircle Fort George entirely. Now, the commander, Brigadier General John Vincent, he realises that the jig is up. This is the British commander. He realises that the jig is up and he starts to evacuate the fort, instructing his troops to spike the cannons and blow up the magazines. Now, spiking a cannon is essentially when you get a big spike and ram it into the muzzle of a cannon. So effectively, yes, it basically it it does exactly what it says on the tin. You you know, it, it renders the it renders the cannon unusable uh and uh, and that's just about that. Um and the magazines obviously that were being blown up, they're not blowing up, you know, all the all the incriminating copies of, of Hustler and Playboy that they have it they're blowing up the ammunition stores. I don't know. I'm not really into weaponry generally speaking. It's it's not a, a forte of mine. Anyway, he, he essentially, you know, if you were, if you were on a boat, he'd be saying "scuttle the ship" is is what's going on there. So, um, to give you a sense of, of of the sort of the time scale here, 
this this bloke Vincent, the General Vincent, he Brigadier General Br- Brigadier General Vincent, excuse me, he gives the order to spike the cannons and to blow up the 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 magazines, to blow up all the the ammunition, the the, the powder, I guess, I don't know, the the stuff that they've got going on there, and. In the time that it took to set fire to all the stuff that they needed to and evacuate the fort, right, in the time that it took for the Americans to arrive, some of the magazines hadn't blown up and American Colonel Winfield Scott, who was one of the first to pursue the British out of the fort and help to to capture it, um, was blown off his horse and broke his collarbone when one of the magazines blew up. So that's the timescale. Vincent's like, all right, get get everything out of here, blow up the magazine, set fire to that, set the fuse, no worries at all, get out of here. And by the time the actual explosions happen, the Americans are already starting to occupy the fort. So it was a very, very quick change of hands there. All sorts of other stuff went on uh, up north with both, as I say, Britain invading the US and the US invading Canada over and over and over again. But interestingly... Barely any territory changed hands at all, and essentially it was just one enormous stalemate all along the border wherever they actually tried to contest it. One of the most famous uh, stories or tales to emerge from the, the War of 1812 was the burning of Washington. This was another thing that took place during the fighting between the, the US and the UK. Uh, because Washington, D.C. essentially got, I mean, close to burnt to the ground. It, th- this young capital city was absolutely had a, a, a real number done on it during this uh, during this fight here because the, the the british they captured the city in august 1814 the war's been fought for two years at this stage and uh i'll tell you what they gave it to the city like you would not believe in 1814 napoleon is defeated and exiled but of course you know this is before the old johnny farnham comeback tour in 1815 napoleon he's not he's not down for the count but uh, in the meantime he's been taken care of and the british they're able to focus much more of their resource many more of their resources i'm gonna go for many more of their resources uh, on the War of 1812. Uh, the British naval blockade of the Chesapeake Bay is led by Rear Admiral Cockburn, and it leads to British, ongoing British raids of coastal towns in and around the bay itself. But in late August, the British, they decide to land troops to launch a major offensive on the cities in the area. The US Secretary of War, his name is John Armstrong, um, he is absolutely 100% sure that they're going to attack Baltimore and not the capital, even though the British soldiers are marching on Washington at this stage. Uh, that's what the scouts are reporting. He decides, Armstrong decides, nope, it's just a ruse, it's just a trick, they're going to turn around, chuck a Yui, and head towards Baltimore. Now, he couldn't be he couldn't have been more wrong if he tried. And later on, he lost his job. Good bloody riddance to bad rubbish there. Absolutely. Abs- what, what, an, what an idiot this bloke is. Because, of course, the British bear down on Washington and arrive, and it is an absolute disaster for the Americans. Washington, it's only tiny. It's only very, very small little city here. It's, you know, it's very, it's built on a swamp. It's very sort of, it's not in great condition, generally speaking. It hasn't been built up. It's not beautiful and, uh, you know, and and a a great place to visit like it is today. And uh, it is still, however, the capital and the British go 
absolutely bonkers on it as a result to really send a message. They kick things off by ransacking the Capitol building. They, they loot it and then they sit in the Congress, uh, the Congress chambers and hold a mock session where they pass a motion to burn the building to the ground. So they're really in, having, having just, just a bunch of real comedians, the, uh, the British troops. They're having an absolute laugh, absolutely taking the piss, having a great time there, having a real giggle about it. And um, this motion, of course, is duly passed. And so they, they fill up the building with rocket power and they blow it sky high. So uh, this may not be something that, most, that many Americans are aware of. But at one point, my friends, your capital did get burnt to the ground by the British. So, you know, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. It's not all bloody apple pie and Bruce Springsteen all the time. After they've blown up the Congress, the British, they all march on up Pennsylvania Avenue towards, of course, you know where they're heading, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, they're heading to the White House. Now, it's here that, uh, well, sorry, it's, it was called the Presidential Mansion at this stage. It's obviously where Madison, uh, James Madison, the president, lived. He wasn't in at the time, but his wife, Dolly Madison, the first lady, had actually a, a hearing of the British, uh, the British, uh, the fact that they were coming, uh, had only just escaped with her silverware and her jewellery uh, and all of that sort of stuff, but not. This is a common misconception It was it, that it was her that uh, she escaped with the famous Lansdowne portrait of George Washington. When you think of George Washington, you, I, I, would, I would hazard a bet that you are thinking of the Lansdowne portrait. It's the one of him that's on the, the, the United States $1 bill. It's the, it's the most famous portrait uh, of the man, and it was, uh, it was hanging in the White House at the time. And it, w- it wasn't saved by Dolly Madison. It was actually saved by uh, the doorkeeper uh, and the gardener. Their names respectively were John Seuss and Mr. McGraw. I wasn't able to find McGraw's name. Uh, so these blokes, they grab this portrait and they get it out of there because, of course, they know that, uh, the, the, that things are about to turn nasty very, very quickly. The British, as a result, they find the building empty and they they find, well, actually empty of people. It's not empty of the fresh meal that had just been served for uh, for the president, uh, you know, and and the rest of the people that he was going to be dining with that night. Uh, And so the British, once again, these absolute jokers sit down and enjoy the meal that had been prepared and they eat it. Uh, <laughs> no worries at all. Wasn't cooked for them, but hey, they're hungry boys. They're hungry chaps, and so they sit down and they 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 stuff it in their gobs. The reason we know this is thanks to the memoirs of uh, of a bloke named Paul Jennings. He was one of uh, Madison's slaves, and uh, he wrote about this extensively, and then went on to write a, a lot of popular Australian children's fiction, apparently as well. Anyway, um, uh, after all this, of course, in the grand tradition of British uh, <laughs> British activity in Washington D.C., uh, they burn the White House to the ground, uh, leaving essentially just a burnt husk. It has to it has to be rebuilt from uh, from scratch. And and again, when I say White House, I'm talking about this the, the presidential mansion, the the the, the, for, the the forerunner, the precursor to the White House itself. The British had a great time after this, setting fire to more or less everything that didn't move. All of the buildings in in Washington, well, I say almost, almost all of the other government buildings around town are are, are burnt down. There are two interesting exceptions here. Uh, The first one (laughs) is when a DC resident, so one of the people who's living in Washington at the time, seeing when they see the the British approaching this government building uh, that that they live near, uh, this bloke, he comes out, he says, oh, you blokes, bloody, 
pull your socks up, stop burning down our town. We're not, not, don't want you here, not interested in this. And they go, oh, sorry, mate, didn't realise. Oh, you don't, want, you don't want us to burn down this government building? Oh, no worries at all. Sorry, where, where do you live, by the way? And he points over to his house and he goes, oh, no worries. And they burn his, his house down instead. So not a particularly classy move from the British there. You know, really not, not a great, <laughs> yeah, bit of an asshole move there. You have to say, burning down this poor bloke's uh, house when, when he was trying to burn, pre- pre- prevent them from burning down the government building, which they burnt down anyway. They burnt down both of them. Anyway. Um, so the other exception, the other sort of interesting thing that happened here, and this building did survive, it was the US Patent Office. When they tried to burn down the Patent Office, the superintendent of patents, this absolute hero, this huge big shot here named William Thornton, he came out from inside and he had a huge go at him. He said, you said, you bastards, you British bastards, you, because the British at this stage, they've pointed a cannon at the building. And now this guy Thornton, he stands out in front of the cannon, he says, listen here, you absolute bastards, how dare you think about burning down the patent office how dare you point a cannon at my building the patent office it's full of all these ideas you're going to destroy all of them get out of here turn around and i'll tell you what i don't want to see you back here again and they are like oh geez sorry mr thornton didn't didn't realize we won't we won't bother you again very very sorry indeed i don't know what he did to psych these blokes out but it worked because they turned tail and didn't come back and uh, the patent office actually it ended up being used by congress uh once the british left uh, as it was more or less the only major building that was uh, left standing in the whole city so it was uh, you know it was it, it was a sort of mock well a, a stand-in for the congress building before it got rebuilt the burning of washington didn't last long uh however because a huge thunderstorm actually maybe even a hurricane kicked up within a day and put out all the fires now this uh, this storm is sometimes known as the storm that saved washington but it also did a huge amount of damage uh, to the city that was already in a bad way. And so it didn't really save Washington. It, I mean, it did put out the fires, but it did then wreck a whole lot, number of other buildings. So it was kind of, you know, uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other there. It wasn't such a great situation for Washington anyway, you slice it. The British, however, they didn't care. They had already marched out of the city. Uh, no worries at all. And this time they were on to attack Baltimore after all. So they were heading up north towards Baltimore and Maryland there uh, to, to, you know, start to put them to the fire and the sword up, uh, up in Baltimore. Turns out Armstrong did know what he was talking about after a fashion, but still, what an idiot he was. Um, the most famous legacy of the War of 1812, undoubtedly, of course, is the US National Anthem. Uh, it is something that uh, is probably the, the greatest cultural legacy of of this conflict. I'm not sure if a lot of people know that the Star Spangled Banner as as a poem, as a song emerged from the battles that were fought, specifically the Battle of Fort McHenry in in Baltimore during the War of 1812, but that is exactly how it uh, how it happened here. So as I say, after the British burnt Washington, they marched on Baltimore. Uh, the British, they were repelled on both land and sea. Land, uh, marching on Baltimore ultimately was unsuccessful. Um, and during this battle, during while they while during the Battle of Baltimore, there is a, a fellow, a lawyer, named Francis Scott Key. You may have heard this name before. Uh, he watched the whole thing, whole battle take place from a harbour, across the harbour, uh, from, from a ship. He was on board a, a ship at the time. Uh, Fort McHenry had been bombarded all night by the British fleet, uh, but when the same ca- sun came up, as indeed, as it goes in the song, uh, Key noticed that the flag was still flying above the fort, and this flag was, and still is, 
massive. If you've been to Washington DC and you've seen it in the history of uh, in in the Museum of American History, you'll know how big this bloody thing was. Incredible thing to see, an amazing historical artifact. Absolutely get yourself to DC if you get the chance to see this flag because it's quite incredible. And as a result, he gets all inspired. Muse comes to give him a bit of a smooch on the forehead here and he uh, and uh, he writes a poem about it and it was set to the tune of a song called the Anacreontic Song and and published. The Anacreontic Song was the official song of the Anacreontic Society, an English gentlemen's club for amateur music Musicians, sure, why not pick that as your song for, you know, your new national anthem? Anyway, the song got more and more popular over the years, uh, but people changed the words and lyrics and all sorts of other stuff until in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson, absolute cracker of a bloke, that bloke, uh, ordered an official version written out. So it was actually only made officially the, the, the national anthem in 1931 during the administration of Herbert Hoover. Before that, before 1931, the US actually didn't have an official national anthem. There were a bunch of other songs that were sung, sung during patriotic occasions, but the Star Spangled Banner made the official, after having been written in uh, during the Battle of Baltimore, or after the Battle of Baltimore, made officially the United States National Anthem in 1931 under Hoover. Final thing we have to talk about today, well, we don't have to talk about, I'm choosing to talk about, I mean, you don't have to listen either, you can switch this off and go and, I don't know, do whatever else you want, but, you know, I would suggest you stick around because it's still, there's still some cracking stuff to get across here. Um, the, the, the last thing we're going to talk about today is, is the war in the south, so in the southeast, as I said. Uh, as the fighting wore on, the British were able to commit more and more resources to fighting the US, as I mentioned, and the war moved further and further south, away from the border in Canada. The British didn't just attack Baltimore and Washington. They also fought in southern Alabama, in Florida, and most famously, Louisiana, with the Battle of New Orleans. Now, the Battle of New Orleans actually, rather interestingly, took place three weeks after the Treaty of Ghent which was the agreement the end of, that ended the war. Uh, this, this agreement was signed three weeks before this famous battle took place. It was a hugely embarrassing defeat for the British as they were licked by Andrew Jackson, leading a huge bunch of, uh, of untrained peasants, essentially, against, against um, highly trained British regulars. It's actually such a good story. I was doing all the research for it. I've decided I'm going to make it into its own episode. So next week, uh, episode number nine, you'll be able to enjoy uh, the story of the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, in, in, you know, it, it deserves an entire episode because so much stuff went on there. Anyway, by the uh, by, the second half of eighteen fourteen, uh, both the US and Britain they're a bit sick of the war. All this this fighting is going on in in, in the well originally in, in the north, now in the south. It's a stalemate. No one's really making any progress. Neither neither of the sides really want the war to continue. They're all they're really sick of things, and so they begin peace talks. They've achieved what they wanted essentially. They've brought each other to this to the brink of economic ruin. And but as Britain is no longer fighting Napoleon. They don't need to blockade French-American trade or impress uh, sailors into the Royal Navy. Again, impressment, not impressing them by, you know, standing on the deck and juggling or flexing their muscles or doing anything, you know. It was a different kind of impressment. Um, so... As a result, there is a peace a peace conference held in Ghent in Belgium, you know, to figure everything out, see how they can go here. Both the British and the American citizenry are, generally speaking, also very, very sick of the war going on. And and as uh, this is simply because it's expensive, and it's expensive as all hell, really, and it doesn't really seem to be doing anything. It's a complete stalemate. Um, so British, the, the British agenda here at this uh, at this peace treaty uh, talks, at these peace treaty talks, is to set up an independent Native American nation past the U.S frontier to curtail western expansion but the u.s are having absolutely none of it so once again poor old native americans they get shafted they get the short end of the stick and after months and months and months of negotiations they finally decide bugger it let's just go back to exactly how things were uh, before the whole war so it is status quo antebellum nothing has changed the borders haven't changed and everything is exactly how it was yet yeah, before before everything even kicked off interestingly th- this this sort of 
where they landed on it is, is, is quite fascinating to think about as well. The Americans, they see it as a US victory. Canada, they see it as a Canadian victory. And Britain, they see it as a rubbish war that didn't mean anything in the place because they were only ever really, you know, fighting with their left hand to begin with. So despite the fact that the US and Canada are both patting themselves on the back for having, you know, gotten it done here, it kind of reminds me of the scene, you know, that one, the bit in Mad Men uh, where they're in the elevator and the guy says he feels bad for Don and then Don absolutely burns him to cinders by just saying, I don't really think about you at all. It's such a sick, sick burn there. Anyway, um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, despite the these countries calling themselves winners. There weren't really any real winners from the War of 1812 at all, but I can tell you what, there, was some, there were absolutely some losers, the poor bloody Native Americans. Different groups of Native Americans fought for both sides during the war, and they got absolutely diddly squat out of it for their efforts. The US continued to expand west. They didn't get this protectorate for all this native, this even this independent nation that they were fighting for from, uh, from the United Kingdom, either from Britain. And so... No one really gave too much of a toss about them. They definitely were the losers here. It really wasn't a great, a great situation for them. In any case, the Treaty of Ghent, it's signed on the 24th of December, 1814, and it's ratified by the British in London three days later. But of course, it doesn't even arrive in Congress uh, in the US until February. And uh, by this stage, of course, the Battle of New Orleans has been fought and has been won. But again, that's another story. Well, actually, no, it's, it's not really another story, but I'm kind of buggered and we're out of time, so bad luck, that's it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the War of 1812. Well, at least partially, we're going to get across the Battle of New Orleans next week, of course. So uh, stick around for that one. Well, I mean, don't stick, don't like stand here in where you are right now, waiting an entire week for it. Do whatever you were going to do anyway, and then next Sunday, check back and download it and listen to it then. Or I mean, or don't even download it. Do whatever you want. Just listen to it. We'll be back next week with the story of 1812. I am buggered after that effort, so we are going to wrap things up very quickly. Of course, halfhousehistory.net, the website. You can find links to our Twitter page. I say our Twitter page. It's just me. It's just a one-man operation. Twitter page there and the Patreon as well. If you want to chuck me a buck or two for these episodes, I'd bloody love it. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much to those of you who are contributing there. And that is that, leaving you, of course, with a question posed uh, by some historians who are on Reddit, quite a number of them actually asking this question. I hope we've answered it this week. Where did the War of 1812 actually begin?